everyone, and welcome. My name is Andrew. And I'm Rachel. And we are Picture the Scene podcast. We are a true crime podcast aiming to put you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. Now, each week we delve into the murky world of lesser known crimes from the UK and Ireland, and occasionally we venture into renowned cases from around the globe. And after a week off, it's great to be back into it, isn't it, Rachel? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we've um, we enjoyed the week off, obviously, but it's great to uh, be back recording and back into the normality of things. It is indeed. But out of any true kind podcast, as always, listener discretion is always advised. And today's episode is no exception. Today, we look at domestic arguments and potential abuse that result in murder. So if that topic is one that you'd rather avoid, please do skip this week. And also, it's a bit of an extra warning this week. As with any case of murder, unless there are eyewitness testimonies or other evidence, sometimes we only get an account from the perpetrator. So please bear this in mind. I've tried to stick to the facts as evidence suggests, but some parts are dependent on the killer's testimony. For those parts, I've only included what was accepted in court as probably being the truth or close to the truth. Now, if you do look this case up online afterwards, please be aware that there is a fair bit of information out there that looks like misinformation at best, or the press making things up at worst. Now, I just wanted to put that out there, because this is a, can be a very emotive subject for some people. So that's a long disclaimer today, Rachel. That was quite a disclaimer, and I'm always yeah. intrigued at the start of an episode when you when you launch into a disclaimer, so yeah. But if you do like what you hear, please do follow us on whatever social media platform you prefer. Subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform of choice. And if you have the capability, give us a rating and review as well. It means the world to us. We we got recently, I shared them with you, Rachel. We got a couple of really nice reviews. One from someone with the username Nanny Evil from Canada, which is a great username, but it was an awesome uh, review and then we got another one from somebody in Germany which I can't pronounce the username so I'm not going to try and butcher it but you know who you are and we loved it so thank you very much yes nanny evil and can't pronounce username we are very 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 <laughs> um grateful for our reviews and thank you so much for taking the time to uh give us the feedback it's always gratefully received and I'm sure you're not really an evil nanny <laughs> but if you like us that much that you want to support us you can do so for less than the price of a cup of tea or coffee on Patreon with our lowest tier starting at £1 per month we release bonus content every month and we even do live episodes like we have done recently the links to our social medias and Patreon can be found in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash scene pod that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com or slash S E N E P O D. Well, Rachel, I can say that in my sleep now, that little bit of an intro. It doesn't feel as long as it did once upon a time. I remember um we couldn't get through an intro intro without me um making some sort of reference to uh some advert on television where you have to like speak really quickly through all the blurb just to get out of the way. Exactly. We do, where possible, now release our episodes a week early for our patron supporters. So you don't have to be Michelle Yo and be everything, everywhere, all at once to move about in time. All you need to do is subscribe to us on Patreon. 
Who's Who's Michelle Yeoh? Oh, it's a really good film that came out this year. She's the older actress, probably in her forties, uh, so probably younger than me. Actually, wow. so obviously not wow. an older actress. Um, Ouch. And it was like a time travel movie. It's really good. I I recommend it. I it's really like it won an Oscar, I believe, or more right. than one maybe. But it's, just just it's... for just for the record, probably be good to have the movie name. And yeah, I've also... said it in there everywhere. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, I just thought you were making reference to something else. But um, also, Andrew, uh, acting isn't like football careers. Um, some people don't start their acting careers until well into their 40s. So it's not, That's I don't true. think it's a case of being an older actress. Thank you. Yeah, no, I apologize. It's actually got the guy in it who, have you ever seen The Goonies? Yeah. You know that little kid who's good at making things. Okay. Um, is it short round? Oh no! Oh, it was in Indiana Jones actually as well. It's short round. He's in it as well. It's really good. Anyway, how are you doing, Rachel? I mean, at least our listeners don't tune into us for movie reviews. <laughs> yes. I'm good, thanks. How are you? I am sparkling. I'm in quite a um. Uh, what's the word? Go get a mood today. Go get a mood today. So. Ooh. Friday, you're coming for it. I am indeed. The question I have to ask you, Rachel, is quite a serious question. Are you ready for some true crime? I was born ready, Andrew. And before we get into it, just as an aside, it's really hard to do this with a number, with the billions of other podcasts out there. But I do believe, listeners, that this particular case has never been covered before on a podcast. Exclusive Claxon. Yes, I told Rachel this several times already because it's uh, it, also, it, it amazed me. Anyway, he he is proud as punch when there's a pod uh, episode that he covers that he can't find anywhere else. Yes. So, if it's safe you to do so, I'd like you to relax, close your eyes, and picture the scene. Today, I'm taking us to Monday, the fifth of March, two thousand and one. And while that may not sound like long ago, it is actually over 22 years now. Anybody, like, you know when you know when you see those memes on Facebook, I, there's not a lot that I can relate to, but I, I can't relate more than when somebody goes, oh, 30 years ago, and you say, oh, yeah, the 70s. Like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in complete denial that the 90s were 30 years ago. How about you? Know, you? Well, I don't, don't to what makes me feel old, Rachel. Oh, go on. That the start of World War Two is now closer to my birthday than today. Oh wow! Yes, exactly. How did you calculate that? Did you go out your way to find that out? Something's just popped in my head. Wow! I randomly think things, especially when I'm in the shower, which is why I don't wash much. So, it's quite a depressing thing to um, have calculated. I'm not going to lie. Yes, but yeah, Monday the 5th of March was 22 years ago now. On this day a few decades ago or so, we're in Ashington. Now, Ashington is a small village in West Sussex that is home to about 2,500 people at our census. It's only three square miles in size. And even though I'm about to talk about murder, in the same year as the murder, it won the best village for community life in the Village of the Year competition. So even though it's a small village, it's only 40 miles or so from London and 20 miles from Brighton. So you're close enough to the big cities and things to do 
if you need to be. We're going to the Millmead area in Ashington and 15 Millmead to be exact. And it's around 9.15pm. The weather was a pleasant, dry evening with a slight 5 mile per hour easterly wind. The weather was 37 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 3 degrees Celsius. And an evening in March in a quiet, well-to-do English village, it was obviously quiet. Or so everybody thought. It was at this time that the quiet evening was broken with loud noises of shouting and some sort of commotion coming from number 15 Millmead. Concerned with what might be occurring there, neighbours went to the house to see what was happening. Now, unbeknown to them, one of the residents of the house had already called the police shortly before the neighbour arrived. Now, Mark Parnham, that resident, had dialed 999 and told the operator this. We have been attacked. Somebody burst into our house. Oh, my God. I don't think she's breathing. It's my wife. What have they done to her head? Oh, my God. There's so much blood. Oh, jeez, her head. There's so much blood everywhere. They have smashed her head in. So so just, just hit pause there for a second. It's 2001. You're a neighbour. Doesn't matter, like, how old or you know, or what you are, are you going to, is your first instinct to go round to that house to see what's causing the commotion? Probably not, if I'm being perfectly honest. You'd have to be quite brave, wouldn't you? Yeah, and I know that, like, we know a lot more nowadays about danger and situations and, you know, and and crime, but I just feel like even in 2001, that would have been quite a dangerous gamble to take if you if you're hearing all this commotion. I mean, I'm you know you're in a small village. I'm guessing there's a very like nice community vibe there, um, but still, that's that's dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, we'd well, hope there was a community vibe because it won best community alive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, yeah, uh, yeah so. you're right. So you're right. Yeah, but when the neighbor when the neighbors arrived at the home. And shortly afterwards, the police actually arrived because, remember, Mark Parnham, the resident, had phoned them. Mark stuck to his story, stating that they'd both been attacked by a pair of robbers armed with an iron bar. (gasps) Mark's injuries were visible and he was injured, but not seriously. His wife, Gillian, however, wasn't so fortunate. She suffered numerous injuries, of which I'll go into detail later. And even though, according to the medical staff, the paramedics that arrived at her home, she battled bravely, she ultimately succumbed to her injuries in their home and died there. Oh, dear. While the paramedics were at the scene, but after it was determined Gillian had died, Mark was behaving very rationally in the house. He kept repeating, how could they do this while crawling up to Gillian on the floor? and touching her head. Quite obvious and really severe triangle-shaped wound to her forehead was there with lots of blood around it. The paramedics at the time kept telling Mark not to touch her and there was nothing that could be done now. And he and he was disturbing the crime scene, but he wasn't listening. Yeah, I mean, and obviously you'll go on to tell us a bit more about why he was acting irrationally, but I kind of feel having watched 
um like a lot of um I guess documentaries on like ambulance and emergency services that like there's no real right or wrong way to behave in shock is there and the police and the ambulance service and you know the the crime scene investigators they've probably seen it all and they do they they can sense like normal versus odd but um I'm not sure if if my loved one was was lying there on the floor I'm not sure that I couldn't like not want to touch them or put my arms around them and you know beg for them to come back do you know what I mean yeah okay yeah yeah no I don't know how to react but now if you remember the story marked all the neighbors and the police was that two robbers broke into the house and attacked them both. Well, it seems that this version of events didn't hold up to much scrutiny because as the ambulance that was carrying Mark, it didn't even get a chance to get to the hospital before he was arrested in the back of an ambulance by the policeman who was in there with him on suspicion of murder. Oh, my God, that's like... That took a turn. Yes. Now, it... Didn't take long for the doctors at the hospital to treat and discharge him. And once he arrived at the police station, they took him into an interview room in which he immediately, without any pressure, admitted his original story was a lie. And he had been arguing with his wife and he had been the one to strike her, causing all of her injuries. Wow. He would, yeah. He would, however, claim provocation and self-defense as his reasoning behind it. The most noteworthy quote from Mark during that first interview was that he told police that he was not human and that he didn't deserve to live after what he did. It's probably just one to remember. Yeah, I can't can't believe, like... I mean, was that because of his strange behaviour or had somebody radioed in from the crime scene and said... The, the, hu- the husband's like one to watch here. No, the police were uh, obviously at the scene, and what had happened is, well, he's not giving anything away because he's admitted to it, but he basically um, trashed the house to make it look like a robbery, and the police just thought this doesn't look like a normal robbery. Like, why would you attack a woman and not steal anything, and why would you destroy the house? And the husband, um, who rightly or wrongly would probably be seen as the biggest danger to a pair of robbers rather than a wife. He would only yeah. have a few slight injuries. So I remember it was only a suspicion of murder. They do that straight away to stop them destroying evidence and stuff, don't they? But yeah, that's so so that's why um that's why he was arrested. And obviously quite correctly so because he admitted it straight away. Yeah. But he did look like he had remorse straight away as well. Now, on the face of it, this sounds like your usual domestic abuse case, with the perpetrator blaming the victim because they can't defend themselves. Initially, I think it does. Don't you, Rachel? Well, you... yeah, he's saying they had an argument and he, he lost the plot. Like, Well, it, he, uh... he, he claimed provocation of self-defense. Yeah, right, okay. That's quite, that's quite, um, that's quite a self-defense, though, like, I'm not sure. Again, I've not been in this scenario, but do when you're defending yourself, is there an intent there to to harm and kill, or is there, or is there an intent there to disable the person? I think, like, if if his wife had been attacked by like the legs or at the arms or something like that to stop her from 
running at him or thrusting something at him fair enough but he's she's she's got that massive wound on her head hasn't she so yeah you just argue that you know he 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 wasn't defending himself if if he had a clear shot at her at her head but i mean i might be diving into it a bit bit far there well let's see it, it may be a stereotypical case or it might not be so let's look at the details and at the end we can discuss what we think because because I believe anyway, it's potentially not as straightforward. And so we need as many facts as possible. So I'm going to tell you about the couple, Mark and Gillian first, and then we can go to onto the events of the day and the catalyst or what caused Gillian's death, aside from the obvious. Yeah. Now, Gillian was the oldest out of the children her parents, Norman and Barbara Jones, had between them. Her father was in the Royal Air Force, and it was at RAF Cosford, which is just northwest of Wolverhampton, in 1962 that Gillian was born. She grew up in Wolverhampton and went to the local school, Colton Hills. Now, it's obvious from a young age that Gillian was smart, and she met all expectations placed on her by studying both mathematics and music at university. Wow. In 1983, towards the end of her second year at university, she married her first husband, Chris Beechin, and they moved to Nantwich, where Gillian finished her degree. And she also then, after she finished her degree, completed teacher training as well to become a teacher. In 1985, her husband, Chris, got a job in West Sussex. So they moved to the the location, and Gillian took up a job at the local all-girl Malaysk Secondary School. Now, it was at this school that she met Mark, who was also a teacher. So let's park Gillian for a moment, and let's look at Mark's life until they met, and then let's bring them both together. Mark was born in Nottingham in 1964 to Gary and Patricia, and before going to university, he moved to the nearby town of Mansfield, where he studied art, design, and graphics at college, before moving on to university to study graphic design. After a short spell working for Marvel Comics, he undertook his teacher training so he could become a teacher. And in 1987, once he passed his teacher training, he moved to West Sussex and took up a job teaching IT at the Malays Old Girl Secondary School. So firstly, this is where I talk about the papers and stuff like that at the beginning. Some reports say that Gillian left her first husband after she cheated on him with Mark. Now, from what I can gather from the facts I could find anyway, that's simply not true. Gillian and her first husband, Chris, broke up on their wedding anniversary day in 1986 for reasons I couldn't find. Mark didn't start working at the school until September of 1987, so the dates simply just don't work out. Do you know what, though? That initial story sensationalises like headlines for papers, doesn't it? And everyone it loves does, it. Yes. So. That's the unfortunate side of um, when when you are reading uh, like crime reports and, and newspaper articles, um, they will try and link anything that might, you know, get the juiciness at the story and and encourage like the sales of the the papers, like with those those kind of headlines. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. When it ties into some more information that we're going into, it makes it sound even better. So, yeah, you're right. Now, it was said to be a love at first sight between Mark and Gillian. Not only by Mark, but 
also by colleagues and friends of theirs. How they met seems to be that during an open evening at the school, Mark walked past Gillian and immediately was smitten by her. So he doubled back and introduced himself there and then, and on the spot, he asked her out. Smooth. Now here's how the assistant headteacher at the school, Shirley Mitchell, would describe that first meeting between the two. The first time they met, Gillian and I were gossiping at an open evening, and he brushed past and straight away asked her out. That's bold, isn't it? I wouldn't wouldn't be that brave. That's uh, not knowing as well, like, he he hasn't had the opportunity to find out if she's married or or single or, or anything really. That yeah, that definitely is a smooth move, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. They became a couple quite quickly, with them moving in with each other some five months later, in January of the next year. And three months after that, they became engaged. A year after the engagement, in March of nineteen eighty nine, they married at the local registrar office. Also in 1989, at the start of the school year in September, Gillian was promoted to the head of the mathematics department at the school, and things were going really well for the pair. In 1990, Gillian gave birth to the first of their two sons, and they moved into the house at 15 Mill Mead, the same house they stayed in until Gillian's death. Gillian was known for always wanting to get things right, and being one of the hardest working members of staff at the school, and Mark was known for being very committed and caring. Both teachers were loved by students and colleagues, and had a good reputation among everyone. Wow. So, like, in this scenario, both kids have lost their parents. Yes. And all those pupils have lost two great teachers, by all accounts. Yeah. Yeah, Mark was described as having loved teaching at a high-achieving school, and the students adored him. He always had time for pupils, doing extracurricular activities, and helping children at lunchtime. A colleague of his said this about Mark. I never saw Mark shout at a pupil, nor tell them off in a severe way. He was very calm and reasonable. He certainly was happy to be married and have children, and I know they were a joy to him. Now, that same colleague, Gary Toretta, would also go on to describe when his own marriage broke down, Mark was the one who was there for him and helped him through the emotional stress. He would say this. He gave me a lot of personal counselling. He would take me out for drinks after school. I just knew I could rely on him for his support, and I really appreciated that. So for years, outwardly at least, The couple seemed like the perfect couple, never arguing, loving their jobs, and seemingly being really good at their jobs and having a happy family. Among the many things Mark would do was to write the Christmas pantomime for the school. As as Gillian studied music and had a keen interest in it, she would always take on a musical role for the same pantomime. Sound like um, quite a power couple at that school then. Yeah. In 1999, a teacher called Chris Worth joined a school when the school year started, and he joined a maths department. As it approached Christmas, they both joined the school band, that's Chris and Gillian, for the pantomime, and would often spend hours together, not only practicing for the band, 
but Chris, oh dear indeed, but Chris would also begin to teach Gillian how to play the guitar because they both shared a love of music. They became really close friends, but nothing more, with their feelings for each other being obvious, but not acted on. After the Christmas and in early 2000, Chris would make Gillian a mixtape full of love songs. I wonder do kids still make mixtapes? They probably don't, do they? Here's a playlist. In, in 1999, absolutely, you would have still made I mean, mixtapes yeah. and playlists. Well, not now. They don't do no. that. No. They'd make like, um, play, yeah, playlists, sorry. Yeah, they'd they'd make like something on Apple Music, wouldn't they? Or, or, or wherever you get your music. It's not much effort, though, is it? Uh, so, yeah, Chris and Mick did in a mixtape full of love songs with one track, Baby When You're Gone by Brian Adams, becoming their song. And they'd play, yeah, and they'd play it together. And another song, Fawn in My Side by Annie Lennox, became a song that Gillian would say represented her husband, Mark. Oh no, that's a bit savage. Yeah. Did she did she put did she write that down somewhere or well she told Chris that. Oh God. On Valentine's Day of two thousand, Gillian gave Chris a teddy bear. And a pair of them turned a close friendship and affection for each other into a sexual relationship on that day. Gillian would describe Mark to Chris as the third child in their marriage, and she now despised him. And that's like, I don't want to throw shade on Mark. Obviously, he, we know what he's done, but it's so easy, isn't it, when you're in a relationship with somebody that's so, seemingly so attentive and loving and caring, making mixtapes, teddy bears, like, and there's the thrill of it as well, that you just sit back and do kind of like take for granted what you've had. Like, oh, he's, he's, he's a kid. He's annoying. I can't stand him. Like, Yeah. We, we know this, by the way, from witness testimony that Chris Worth gave during Mark's trial. In early 2001, so a few months before Julian's death, Mark became suspicious about the affair due to the fact that he found one of the mixtapes that Chris had made Gillian. When he confronted Gillian with it, she told him he was paranoid and a schizo. That's her words, not mine. That's really kind of her. I have to say, though, that this, that was what Mark said in his testimony. Now, this is in direct contrast to the evidence that Chris Worth gave that she was getting ready to tell Mark and leave him. Because if she was getting ready to tell Mark and leave him, I don't know which is true, then surely, I mean, I believe she told that to Chris Worth, because why would he lie? Because his life was ruined after she died. If she was, then surely this would have been a good time to tell Mark, rather than just say he was paranoid. Yeah, it's and it's really easy for Mark, isn't it, to um to throw her under a bus and be like, oh yeah, she called me all sorts of names and wasn't very kind to me, but she 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 told me that there was nothing there and almost kind of like denied that that um she had started to break up with him. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it could be, yeah, it could be that she never said that, but it could also be that she told Chris that she was leaving him when she wasn't going to leave him just to keep Chris in the relationship. It could be one of the two. I'm not saying it was either one, but both of them, I mean, both options are options that have happened in the past and will happen in the future. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's not as simple as just leaving her husband. She's got the two kids and who knows like whether her husband would be like, I'm keeping the kids. Like if you're walking out, you're going yeah. on your own with a bag. Like it would be very difficult, wouldn't it? To, to like unpick your life from, from that marriage and oh, just def- walk away. Definitely. Don't forget that all teachers at the same school. And yeah. G- Gillian is actually Chris's boss because she was the head of the math department. Yeah. He, he it, it's teacher. really tricky, isn't it? Yeah. So how Chris and Gillian would communicate, and I'm guessing this was before smartphones, is that Chris would miscall the house and Gillian would call him back or the other way around. One wow. time, yeah. Isn't That's it, old school, isn't it? isn't it? Yeah, like, obviously, bef- like bef- before smartphones, I wasn't dating, like, let's be honest. And um, I don't think I was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure... When did the smartphone come out? 2005? Uh, no, it was before then. Um, well, okay, yeah. it depends what you cast as a smartphone. I think like early 2000s. Okay, I definitely wasn't dating then. I'm not ashamed to admit it because I was only 16 at the time. But um, but yeah, I, like you just don't, you don't have any, uh, I guess, understanding of the struggle that was probably there with not being connected to someone that, yeah, if you were having an affair with, like, they weren't just at the end of the phone for a quick text message. It would have been, you know, yeah. more more risky, like meeting, calling the house, uh, sending a letter. It's mad, isn't it? Well, text messages were around then, but yeah. I no, get you. no um, were they? They were, Maybe... because I, I started texting in about 96, 97. Oh, right, okay. Cool. Anyway. Well, yeah. yeah anyway, cool. this is don't here, are we? History, but you, we get we get your point. You're right, especially because these were like adults, so it was more the kids doing it at that age at the time, wasn't it? But yeah. But one time, however, Mark dialed one four seven one to see who had called. Oh shit! And when Chris answered the phone, it seemed bizarrely he didn't confront Chris. Instead, he had a conversation with him about a jumper Chris had loaned him. And he actually turned up at school the next day with the jumper. Oh. Now, most of what I have said so far has been backed up pretty much. Like the jumper story, for example, that was confirmed by both men. So, yeah, it's just a rather bizarre thing. Um, so, So let's skip forward to the night of the death. The evening started off well, with a fellow teacher at the school and her husband going to the couple's house for an evening meal and they left around 7.30pm. So just under two hours before he killed Gillian. The teacher would go on to give a statement that the couple were getting on really well, and they were very loved up, and they couldn't stop touching each other when her and her husband left at 7.30. That always makes me feel really uncomfortable when I'm in someone's house and they're being overly affectionate. Um, what? So... Makes you feel uncomfortable because you're the third wheel. Well, I don't mean affection is nice to see. I mean, when it's... When Overly. It's too like much, it wouldn't make you uncomfortable PDA. being in your home and your wife was being affectionate to you, right? Oh, no, of course not. No, but it would make me feel uncomfortable if she was being overly affectionate, like like suggestive touching and stuff like that in front of other people. Yes, yes, yes. Suggestive touching. <laughs> I was trying to find a, <laughs> think of a nice way to put it, but yes. That was very polite for you. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, this bit, coming forward from now on, though, we only have Mark's word for some bits, 
but also a bit of forensic evidence for other bits. Mark would go on to say that he was certain that she was having an affair. So that evening, he went through her purse and he found condoms and contraceptive pills, which confirmed what he thought. I mean, t- to be fair, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw this in there, like, no shit, Sherlock. You know, you found a mixtape. Yeah. You you've done one four seven one and found that he's call calling your house. Like, there's obviously other things. Like, she's probably not touched you in a couple of months and things that have built up. Like, yeah, yeah, it's blazingly about... obvious at this point. But like, he's probably just putting it all on for the jury isn't he that like oh he he discovered late that they were having an affair and he was heartbroken yeah no that's what i was thinking i was thinking like those two things in themselves it wouldn't prove you having an affair but yeah unless the the marriage attends into a sexless marriage but then how does that explain the loved up and touching each other that evening that the teacher saw who was at the house of the mill and um so yeah it kind of contradicts a little bit what Mark was saying. But Mark Mark said that he felt devastated and he confronted Gillian that evening, who confirmed that she was having an affair and she started taunting him, comparing him unfavorably to Chris. Right. Had she had a few drinks? No, I think she was. No, no drinks, actually. No alcohol in her system. Oh, okay. Wow. So, so like, if you're to believe Mark then um, that's really quite savage, like, to just go straight in, isn't it? Like, and ta- start taunting. Yeah. Well, no, actually, let's, let's be... I wanted to leave this out because it... it um, I didn't even get into the story, but apparently... And he said this, so I don't see why it would be untrue because it doesn't sound good to him. He said to her, I can't be married to a slag that sleeps with other men. So that probably was provocation for her then taunting him maybe oh, okay yeah. arguing. gosh um, I didn't want to say that word but I did now um, he said Sorry. that's okay I'll, I'll hate you later <laughs> he, he said that it was during the argument that Gillian picked up a six inch metal bar that he had taken home for an art project and started hitting him or attempted to hit him with it he said that he then took the metal bar off her and he went to, on the phone to call an ambulance for himself, dropping the bar on the floor at the time. He then claimed that she picked up the bar back up again and she started hitting him on the back of the head and the back of the neck. Now, the prosecution would disagree with this and said that he took the metal bar home on purpose because he knew his wife had been having an affair for a couple of months and he intended to kill her. Wow. So so they also disputed that she attacked him first. Medical evidence that she attacked him first anyway, because medical evidence would confirm he had been attacked on the back of the head and the neck. So she she must have at some point done that with the metal bar. Yeah. Yeah, but has she done that? Because she's been walloped with it and she's like, yeah. he's yeah, dropped it, it to call 999 because that could have been quite accurate. And then uh, and she's gone, you shithead in her last moments and gone gone hell for leather on him possibly well he said that when she started doing this he put the phone down he took the bar from her and then he went into a frenzy he said that he couldn't fully remember but it felt like he hit her hundreds of times 
the post-mortem would reveal that he had, in fact, hit her 73 times with the iron bar. Wow. 44 of those on her head. By the time he had finished, she had two school fractures, severe head injuries, and obviously was dying and she died. And that that's the thing, like, he's gone to extremes there, almost like an overkill. And it's been a frenzied attack, hasn't it? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I can imagine the jury could see right through that. He then said that he ransacked the house to make it look like a robbery, and then he called the police. So that brings us up to the start of the episode where I described when the neighbours turned up and the police. So what do you think so far, Rachel? Is yeah, it, I, think, I think you think he intended to kill her. Whether he, whether it's premeditated, like I've not made a decision on that yet, but uh, I feel like there was intent to harm her and, and you know, viciously because of the force of which he he hit her and where he hit her as well. Like he, he did at the end of the day, um, he was embarrassed and shamed. Like I, I called them a power couple earlier, didn't I? Like she'd put all of that in jeopardy by having a sordid affair with, with one of her staff members. And um, yeah, he was probably really, really mad. But as well, like my point still stands. Who knows if he was in a rage, how that neighbor, you know, walking in on that would have, if she'd have fared well, like I'm assuming it was a lady, by the way, that that uh, was the neighbor that, that kind of came around. It and, was, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, he he could have been well into, you know, the 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 black mist, the red mist, whatever they call it, that that descends when um when you know you're um in like being particularly violent. Um so yeah, she was really putting her life at risk there going going around to the house, wasn't she? Yeah, my only thoughts on this, I'll tell you what I think at the end of the episode, but my only thoughts on this is if it was like unintentional in the fact that it was a spur of the moment thing, he didn't plan it. He had the foresight afterwards to trash the house, but then when the paramedics arrived, it was out of control and he couldn't stop himself going near her. Yeah, that's two- that's that's the calculated side of it, isn't it? Yeah. That's the only thing I'm thinking so far. And did he like is there any proof that he he delayed calling the No, he didn't delay. Uh it was well, obviously, you don't know how he trashed the house afterwards. So there was that delay, but there was no like massive delay. Yeah, I I, I always recall uh, an interesting episode on one of our favorite pods, Seeing Red, around um, uh, the step count on um, on the man's uh, Fitbit um, and the the woman's Fitbit. So the man had murdered his wife, and then he had trashed the house. Um and her her heart rate had had gone, and his heart rate had spiked at the point that obviously he had killed her, and then um a- after the fact when he'd gone round trashing the house like he'd obviously exerted a lot of energy, but her heart rate had stopped like and by the time the the trackers went into evidence and he was being questioned by the police he'd had like forty five minutes to an hour to like set the scene you know for yeah. And for for the police to turn up, which I feel is quite pre- premeditated. But if this guy's 
called 999 relatively quickly and probably just gone round, trashed whatever he could see, which then indicates to the police, this is weird. Why it, aren't it, why haven't the doors been ransacked? It could be actually because what I'm thinking is what the noise of him trashing the house is what the neighbor heard. Yeah, yeah. So it's frantic it, then, isn't it? So, so and and the police turned up almost immediately after the neighbor, mm. which makes me think that maybe. Yeah, he phoned them, then trashed the house actually, rather than the yeah. other way around. Yeah, so so I feel like, um, I feel like it's it's an interesting one where like it's not premeditated murder, um, in the sense that he was building up to that, but it's happened and now he's trying to like quickly sort himself an alibi, which still, you know, that takes a lot to think about in the moment. I, ca- I yeah. can't speak from experience, having never murdered anyone, but I imagine like. There's a fight or flight moment, and he's definitely fighting it, isn't it? Yeah, and also you've also got to throw in the fact that was it coincidence that all this happened when their two kids were not at home that evening? Well, yeah, there's there's taking advantage of that, isn't there? Yeah, so let's get on. Should we get on to the arrest trial and afterwards? Of course, yeah. Because I found this interesting. So, as he pretty much admitted, he had done it straight away in the interview. When he was charged, his solicitor offered the police and the CPS the chance of a plea deal. He would happily admit to manslaughter and plead guilty to that, rather than be taken to trial for murder. They refused that, and they took him to trial. Now, I've pretty much gone over what was in the trial with the evidence and whatnot, so I'm not going to go over that again. So I'm going to ask you a question before I get into any more. What do you think, Rachel? Was he guilty of murder? Was he guilty of manslaughter or did they find him not guilty of both? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt over whether it was murder. Um, I, yeah, I feel like it was like a vicious and I stand by my comments about like a, a really vicious and like overkill of an attack. Um, I don't think it was premeditated. I think it was, you know, still murder. But but yeah, I don't think it was premeditated. Okay. Well, a jury would find him not guilty of murder. Oh, wow. They would find him guilty of manslaughter, and the judge would sentence him to six years' imprisonment. What? So you don't think that's enough? Six years? Okay, I, well. I think a woman has lost her life in a pretty ferocious attack. But okay, that's, that's interesting, your I'm, I'm reaction not, I'm here. Not... I'm not sat there listening to all the evidence. I'm, I'm just hearing your side of it. Uh, so. Well, no, I've pretty much told you it all. Um, but it's interesting your reaction there. During the discussions at the sentencing hearing, Mark Spicer would remind the judge that Mark had offered to plead guilty to manslaughter at the very beginning, so he should get a reduced sentence for that. The judge, however, oh. the judge, however responded that it didn't matter if he did because when it went to trial, he pled not guilty. Even though just a week before the trial, the prosecution were given the chance once more to accept a guilty plea for manslaughter, but they wanted to go for murder, so they declined them. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I'm i not defending Mark in any way, but I get that. He is pleaded not guilty to murder, and he is standing by that. And I know I've said it was clearly murder, just not premeditated. Like, he's not... Yeah, he's he's not pissed the court system about. He's he's been honest with, I'm guilty of manslaughter because I took her life, but it wasn't intentional. I I, it, I do though think that six years is is a really short 
amount of time and probably not <laughs> there's no justice there for her family and her loved ones is there no well no but it's interesting you say that he'll be sentenced on the 11th of january 2002 so that's when he got his six years on the 7th of february 2003 the court of appeal would convene to look at this case but mark's defense appealed on two grounds which is why it's interesting what you said the first one being that the original judge should have taken into consideration that he was willing to plead guilty to manslaughter. And the second grounds was that as a jury had given an indication that this was not intentional, so because it, they said manslaughter, that means that they were indicating that he didn't intend to kill her. Yeah, yeah. It was a moment of lost control, so the sentence of six years was too high anyway. Yeah. Compared to other wow. previous convictions, and and his um his defense actually had four different cases, which I'm not going to go into detail for, for basically four similar cases, where each case got less than six years wow. as a result. So they said, well, there's 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 a pattern here, so he got too much. And just for context, guys, like I'm not overly familiar with sentencing rules and laws and averages in in the uk we're actually we've talked about it and we're definitely going to do an episode probably for our patreon supporters on sentencing and um you know what murder versus manslaughter and white color crime versus you know like violent crime street crime um we're going to dive into that aren't we and i think that that will really help me understand a lot more about it but yeah i just don't feel like Six years justifies the loss of a life. Not that any sentence would as well. I can't can't honestly say that you could put like a an amount of years on you know on taking a life, but six years just feels particularly brutal. And the fact that his his um defense team are going for less is is insane. But Yeah, exactly. Well, the Corps of Appeal though, they had the transcripts from the original trial which is why I, I could tell you what happened between the conversation between the judge at the sentencing hearing yeah. and the appeal judges agreed that yes it didn't matter that Mark pled not guilty at the trial because he was only in the end convicted of manslaughter and that's what he was willing to plead guilty to anyway Yeah, and because they gave the prosecution several chances of accepting that the judge should have taken that into consideration. Secondly, they also agreed that, yes, the sentence of six years was high compared to the cases that Mark's defence brought, with the average of those cases being four years. But, as I always say, well, I said it recently, and I'll say it all the time, the appeal judge is going to such minute detail. So they examined those four cases that Mark's defense had brought as an example in in that they find two pixel these cases. And they pointed out that in each case, there had been one or more mitigating factors that were not present in this case with Mark Parnham. So while six years was high compared to those cases, it was not excessive. Wow. So in the end, the appeal judges determined that Mark should have been sentenced to four years due to his early guilty plea. Which and can meant... I just 
Yeah, sorry. Can I just then say, would he have got out halfway through that sentence on good behaviour? Well, he was released from prison in late 2003. So he got convicted in 11th of January 2002. He was arrested and remanded in uh, March of 2001. So he spent two and a bit years in prison. Yeah, but no, I just mean in general on a manslaughter charge. Yes, manslaughter is not the same as life. It's not minimum term. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, yeah, so he got released in late 2003. Now, I looked up the... These things interest me, so sorry if it bores you out there. I looked up the property records, and it seemed that just before his release, he sold a house in Millmead for £227,000. Four years ago... The people that bought it sold it for almost £600,000. That's some profit, isn't it? But it shows that he was, just before his release, he obviously left the area. Now, I couldn't find out what happened to either Mark after his release or the two sons a couple had. I would assume, to correct me if I'm wrong here, because this is a blatant assumption, he wouldn't have got them back, would he? They would have gone with family or into the care system. I don't, I don't know. I don't think you can assume he wouldn't have got them back. Like well, he's been convicted of manslaughter. Yeah, against their mother. I don't know. I honestly don't. I only see if people know. I think, let us know. I think yeah, definitely. I would love to to find out more about this if anyone can shed any light. But I would imagine there would be an interest if the children wanted to be wanted to have their father in their life. There'd be an interest to reconnect them, whether or not that would. That would just be in like scheduled visits for the foreseeable or or not. Um but yeah, that that's a good question that I'd love to to know a bit more about. Now Chris Worth, do you remember the other person involved? In How could we forget? Yes. Mr. Romantic, yeah. He resigned his teaching spot on the day he found out about Gillian's death. And wow. I put obviously out of shame. Um and, uh, well, it's no shame in having an affair, but being part of the whole thing. And apart from his testimony at the trial, I couldn't find out what happened to him. He he clearly, it was love for him, wasn't it? I think so. Probably guilt, yeah, that he brought on that. The, the teachers, like the head teacher, a friend and a friend who worked at the school, said none of them, no one had a clue about the affair. They, they all thought that Chris was infatuated with Gillian, but Gillian was too devoted to her marriage to, to entertain it. They didn't realise that there was actually an affair there. Chris testified that... Chris testified the same as what her friend said about Gillian, that she was always the dominant one in relationships, not just like actual relationships, but friendships, and she always took control. And he said that she was one that pushed for the relationship and she was more than happy to do it, but... Um, I don't know, a friend thought that would never happen, so I don't know about that. But, yeah. Um, it, yeah. it would take a lot. If they were in a full-blown physical affair, it would take a lot to hide that. So you do have to question her For a year as well. integrity. And also, I mean, I don't know. I wasn't in the working world back in 2001. I, I mean, I wasn't shy of joining it just two years later. But would there have been, like, HR policies around, like, management and and you know the the same way there would be with a pupil pupil teacher would there be with a management and teacher relationship like surely that's um I, I mean know. not as extensive because obviously the pupil is is a lot 
younger in most cases, but even so that the, the management is in a position of power and the, the staff member being Chris in this case is, um, you know, is that, is that power being abused? I don't know about a school situation in 2001. I was working and there was plenty of relationships between staff members and management and direct reports and stuff. So Fair in, enough. in my workplace there was, but I don't know about a school setting. It might be different. But yeah, it, it's a bit mad, isn't it? That like he he's had to, he probably felt quite guilty and partially to blame. Yeah, exactly. And Rachel, I guess the question with this one is that irrespective of why someone was killed, unless it was literally a kill or be killed situation, there's no excuse for killing someone. No. But do you believe, for this case, that it was a spare-of-the-moment thing, or do you think he planned it? I, I still stand by, like, it not being premeditated. I just think, I mean... Yeah, I'm leaning towards that. But the only thing that gets me is the fact that you have, you're, you're a parent, Rachel. Yeah. When your kids are not at home, it's usually a very pre, pre-planned thing, isn't it? It's not often your kids are not there. Oh, and, yeah, no, and, definitely. And, you know, there's, there's yeah. a range in sitters and things, but they have had teacher friends around that night. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They've had teacher friends around who said that... I'm cutting you off, sorry, Rachel, but it was said that there was no indication whatsoever there was anything wrong. Yeah. He, mysteriously, he was an IT teacher. Yeah. I know he had all the extracurricular work, but he mysteriously took an, a metal bar home with him for an art project for school. Um, and he suddenly became upset and confrontational about finding things that indicated she was having an affair when he already found things. And when he spoke to Chris, he didn't even confront Chris. He just spoke to him about a jumper and, and gave him the jumper back the next day. Uh, so I, I don't know. It, Very it, calm and cool. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it feels like, I want to think maybe it was a spare the thing, but if he if you stick to his story as well, I'm just trying to think both sides here. You stick to his story. She started attempting to hit him. And from what I can gather, she didn't actually hit him the first time. Or properly, he took the metal bar off her and went to phone an ambulance. Why would you then, if someone's been trying to attack you with a metal bar, then just drop the metal bar so they could pick it back up again and yeah. attack you again? Um, and also, actually, just came to me then that first like attack, if it happened, he didn't get injured from it by his own admission. So, why did he go pick the phone up to phone an ambulance? Yeah, um, I don't know, it's just. We'll never know. There are only two people that will know what happened that day. One of them's dead, and the other one, obviously, will never tell anyone because he's been in and out of prison for this. So it's a strange one, but but yeah, interesting, I think. Mm. For our listeners, Rachel is nodding her head. <laughs> yeah, Rachel... I, th- I think I think we could go around in circles all day on it, yes. though, couldn't we? I I feel like uh, you know he he was very lucky with his punishment. And, and you know, the crime was unnecessary. Someone's lost their life at the end of the day. It's just tragic all around. Two and a half years, basically, he served in prison. Now, obviously, he'd have been on license after that, but it's not a lot, is it, really? Yeah, and he, yeah, he's ruined his career because he won't be able to go back to teaching. But, uh, you know, he's a free man. He's got the rest of his life to live, hasn't he? Yeah. 
Okay then, shall I wrap, wrap this up? Yeah, go for it. This has been Season 3, Episode 14, called Teacher's Pet. And if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like all of you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. For those of us in relationships, or who have been in long-term relationships, relationships in the past, we all know that more than once you've had conversations with your partner about how couples they know who pretend to never argue and be in perfect relationships must be false. Now, does this case prove that those relationships are false or is it the opposite? Does it prove that you can love someone too much and be driven to murder? One to think about. So, everyone, thank you all for listening and we shall see you next week. Same time, same place. See you next week, guys. Bye. Bye.